0: Our scripture reading for this afternoon are two passages. The first one from 2 Samuel chapter 15. God's word reads as follows. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for decision that Absalom would call to him and say what city are you from and he would say your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel Then Absalom would say to him look your case is good and right but there is no deputy of the king to hear you moreover Absalom would say oh that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has a suit or cause would come to me then I would give him justice and so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom came, said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Gishor in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron, and with Absalom And with Absalom went two hundred men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ephithophel, the Gileadite, David's counselor from his city of Geoth, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Then you will also turn with me to Psalm Three. This is our text for this evening, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how they have increased who troubled me! Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me; my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and He heard me from His holy hill. I lay down. And slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, How well do you handle the changes and the challenges of life? How too well do you cope with adversity, with sorrow and suffering? Are you perhaps feeling stressed out by your circumstances in life? Are you on edge, nervous, jittery, perhaps even experiencing panic attacks? Do you lie awake at night, tossing, turning, Pacing the floor because your mind is constantly racing, filled with doubts and with worry. Are you consumed with fear? So let me ask you this afternoon, in whom or what do you place your trust? Every day, whatever our situation, whatever our circumstances, we are faced with a choice, aren't we? We can proceed into the day with much fear or we proceed into the fit, into the day with faith looking to our father in heaven. The role of faith to looks up to God entrusting ourselves solely into his loving hands and into his care. Faith is a significant factor in terms of how well we cope with the challenges and our circumstances in life itself, with the sorrows and the sufferings of this life. Living life by faith also impacts our spirit of contentment, our thankfulness, and even our worship of God himself. Here in Psalm 3, David is undergoing a major, major crisis in his life. And yet, what do we read? David says, I lay down and slept. We ask ourselves, really? Really? How is that even possible? Let's take a closer look at this beautiful psalm and see how David handles this crisis in his life. We proceed under the theme, in distress but confident in God, noting first of all the conflict, secondly the confidence, and thirdly the comfort. The inscription congregation provides the context to this psalm look at the inscription with me a psalm of david when he fled Absalom, his son the inscription is part of the text in hebrew and then we ask us we say to ourselves wow what an absolutely deplorable situation david 's own son is leading a military coup to do nothing less than to dethrone his own father over the years. A handsome, smooth talking Absalom has been working the people over to win their favor. This is not some hastily impulsive put together plan, some coup to overthrow the throne. No, this is a sinister, this is a well-calculated revolt. As we read in 2 Samuel 15, 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom's popularity is on the rise. And the conspiracy against David is gaining momentum among the ranks of Absalom. David's now approximately 60 years old solomon the rightful heir to the throne is is perhaps only 10 years of age a is is david's advisor advisor he's deserted him and so in absalom's thinking this is really the ideal time to take over the throne this is the absolute best time for revolt In verse 1, David laments, Lord, how they have increased who troubled me. Many are those who rise up against me. This is not a solo effort on the part of Absalom. This is not Absalom with a band of, of renegades, impulsive sort of attack. No more than that. David says his enemies are many. The people who once sang the high praises of David are doing what what did we read they're bowing the knee and kissing the hand of Absalom we say what's going on what's happening here several things first of all the prophecy of 2nd Samuel 12:11 god's judgment against david for the sin of adultery with bathsheba is coming to fulfillment here In that passage we read, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Absalom's rebellion is now one of the many consequences of David's sin. What's happening? Scripture's being fulfilled here, isn't it? David's on the run. Why? Why? God tells us, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Secondly, the events portrayed here in David's life is a foreshadowing of a greater king than David himself. In 2 Samuel fifteen thirty, we didn't read that passage, but it reads as follows. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with them covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. We have a pretty pathetic picture here of a king, don't we? David, the king of Israel, is despised and he's rejected by his own people. He plots up the Mount of Olives, deeply grieved, and he's weeping. Why? He weeps for his son. He weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for the people of God who have rejected God's anointed king. Here on the Mount of Olives, David seeks refuge as as he laments his deplorable situation with his son seeking to usurp the throne. Where does this take place? In the very place, on the very same mountain, that another king of Israel would later lament the betrayal of his disciple Judas and lament being despised and rejected by his own people. Here too, on the very, very place, Jesus would weep. Weep for those of Jerusalem. He would weep not in self-pity, but that they rejected the Lord's anointed. We have a prophetic picture here, congregation, of Jesus, the greater king that would follow in David's footsteps to this very, very same mountain. Thirdly, we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here in light of redemptive history? We Take a look at the storyline of redemptive history. What is happening here? What's really at stake here? Well, what's at stake is what we read about this morning in Psalm 2. What we see going on here in chapter, in Psalm 3 is really a clash of the kingdoms. What we have here is the kingdom of God and that of the world on a collision course, don't we? Absalom seeks to usurp the kingship of David. Absalom seeks to usurp the throne belonging to David and the rightful heir is is Solomon. So Absalom's revolt then is directed against a sovereign God and his anointed king. Actually, King Jesus, isn't it? God made a covenant, a covenant with David that the line of promise from which the Messiah would be born Would come through the line of David and through his son Absalom, or Solomon rather. So we ask ourselves, what's happening here? Satan, beloved of the Lord, Satan is that fiery dragon seeking to devour the Christ child. Say how? Through Absalom. Here we have Satan on the prowl. Satan wants nothing more to dethrone David For what purpose? To ultimately dethrone the Christ. Satan wants the man of his choosing on the throne rather than Solomon. This is the antithesis of Genesis 3.15. This is the reality of Psalm 2, the clashing of the kingdoms. Satan is at war with God's anointed, with David, and ultimately, the Christ. Fourthly, there's another thing happening here. The enemy's taunting David. Look at verse 2. Many are they who say of me, there is no help from him in God. Not only are the enemies of David seeking to, great in number, seeking to overthrow the throne of David, but they're exceedingly confident, aren't they? They earnestly believe that that. God cannot rescue David in this situation. They're cocky. They're they're arrogant. They're proud. They're they're defiant. What's their claim? God can't save David. David's God is impotent, powerless to save. There's no stopping them. And here again congregation, we have a foreshadowing, don't we? We have a foreshadowing of what the people of Israel would later say to Jesus, God's anointed, as He hung from the cross. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-two to 43 we read, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. He trusted God, let Him deliver Him now, if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Arrogant, defiant, mockingly they urged Jesus go ahead call on your God they taught Jesus claiming God is powerless to save him and we cannot even begin to imagine how how tempting it would have been for Jesus just to break loose and show them a thing of two sure I'll show you his king I'll show you my power But no, Jesus resists this last temptation, doesn't he? He has to remain on the cross. Why? Because that was his earthly mission. Why? Apart from the cross, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. There would be no salvation. There would be no eternal life for you and I. The greatest suffering endured by Jesus is not the nails that pierced his hands and his feet. It's not the the burning intense sensation of of the lungs screaming out now it's not even the taunting cheers of unbelief it was being forsaken by his father in heaven my God my God why have you forsaken me why it's beautifully expressed in our Lord's Supper form that we would never be forsaken by God God's silence, his refusal to deliver his son from the cross was that God through his son might deliver us sinners, those of us here today. How tempting for David to believe Satan's lie. David, give it up. There's no help for you in God. Satan knows exactly where to strike, doesn't he? Causing David to doubt God's love for him. Cause David to question God's covenant promise made to him and God's ability and his power to save. Cause him to doubt the sovereignty and the providence of God. David, look at you. A pathetic figure of a king. Barefoot. Weeping. Crawling up a mountain. (laughs) Where's your God now, David? The jeering of God's impotence would have pierced David's soul. The jeering cuts deeper than a sword into David's heart. Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said, If all the trials which came from heaven, all the temptations which ascended from hell, all the crosses which arise from earth, would be mixed and pressed together. They would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Satan continues to taunt us. There's no help for you in God. Why don't you Christians just give it up already? Your God is impotent. He's powerless to save. Your God's unfaithful. He doesn't remember His covenant and His promises. Your God doesn't answer your prayers. Where is He? God is useless. Whether that be in physical affliction or from our sins. Beloved of the Lord, how terrible it would be for any of us to doubt God's ability. To save and to deliver any one of us. To doubt the sovereignty of God. To doubt the love of God for us sinners. Would put us in the worst place ever, wouldn't it? And that's exactly where Satan wants to drive David. And that's where he would love to drive you and I. Your God, where is he? Look at your situation. Look at your circumstances. Grieving, weeping, barefoot. David desperately wants David to believe there's no help for you from God. Why? Because, beloved of the Lord, that would simply crush us, wouldn't it? It would crush us. To believe that God is impotent and powerless to save. And yet, what is our confession? God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God will not allow the troubled waters of life to overflow. When we walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. Do you ever feel like you're treading water? The troubled waters of life seem like they're overflowing you. And what's the promise of God's word? God will not allow the troubled waters of life to overflow you. Doesn't the heat of the trials, the sorrows of this life, get extremely hot like they're burning? And yet the assurance of God, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. God won't allow us to drown. The troubled waters will not overflow us. We will not be burned by the sorrows and the trials of this life. God assures us of that. He guarantees it in His Word. And thankfully, we will love the Lord. We will never have to endure what Jesus endured for us on the cross to be forsaken by our Father in Heaven. But the question is, do we by faith actually believe this? Or do you feel like you're drowning? That God has forsaken you. The trials and sufferings of life feel like we're getting burned. Is God there to help? Let us lift up our eyes to the hills. From whence comes our help? Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful that we begin every worship service with that declaration of faith? Congregation, where does your help come from? Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Every Sunday, every worship service, we confess our dependence and our faith in our almighty, sovereign God. How did He create the heavens and the earth? He spoke and all things came into being. That's the God in whom we trust. That's the God who will never forsake us. Psalm 27, The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the answer is nothing and no one. Secondly, David's confidence in the Lord is expressed in verses three to four. Follow along with me. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and He heard me from His holy, holy hill. And we hear, beloved Lord, what a wonderful confession of faith by David, don't we? David acknowledges that the Lord is the protector of his life. The Lord is the guardian of his soul. The Lord has promised that Solomon would be that rightful heir to the throne from which eventually would come the Messiah. God does not lie. God does not break his covenant promises. The crisis, yes, will come to a godly resolution as God promised and as God ordained it to be. David is completely confident. David's response, beloved of the Lord, is not one of fear, but is one of faith. Picture him, weeping, wailing, barefoot, head covered in disgrace and humility, walking up a mountain, the Mount of of Olives. But notice, we don't hear David wallowing in self-pity, do we? We don't hear David, oh, poor me. His life and his kingship are not in his hands, but are in the hands of the almighty sovereign God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God will ward off those fiery darts of David's enemies. God will ward off those fiery darts of the devil who want to dethrone David, but in doing so would ultimately dethrone the Christ. God made a covenant with David. I will establish my kingdom with you. And David puts his trust in that covenant promise. David's future doesn't depend on, on David's ingenuity. It doesn't depend on self, the wisdom of, of, of mighty counselors and a mighty army. No, his future lies in the hands of a sovereign God. God who made promises, a God who will fulfill what he has promised through David and through his son Solomon leading to the Christ. And so it is to this almighty, to this ever faithful God, that now David prays. Here in this morning prayer, David prays confidently, he prays believingly, and he prays expectantly that God will hear him. In times of distress, congregation, what better time is there to take it to the Lord in prayer? We sang it for our pre-service song, didn't we? God is our rock, our salvation, our refuge, our strength, a very present help in trouble. God is the reason for David's confidence. Is that true for you and I? In whom or what do we put our confidence? In times of a crisis, in times of uncertainty, do we pour out our heart before the Lord? Do we pray confidently? Believingly, expectantly. Do we really believe in the sovereignty and the providence of God? That all things are ordained by God? Do we believe God's covenant promises? I will be your God and you will be my people. Think about it. We, by grace, are his adopted children. God is our Father through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you live like you believe it? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe I'm a child of God. But do we pray with that earnestness? Do we live by faith, trusting and believing in the word and the promises of God? His greatness, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. How great is our God in whom we put our trust. And if God's will, beloved Lord, is not to relieve us of the burden or our situation or circumstances, then like the Apostle Paul, what does God say to us? My grace is sufficient. I prayed recently for a lady in our congregation with Lyme's disease. I prayed, Lord, that if it wasn't a cure for her relief, that she would be supplied with the sufficiency of, her, of God's grace to uphold and to sustain her. She says, people always pray for healing. But what if healing is not the plan of God? Then what do I need? The sufficiency of God's grace to carry me and to sustain me for each and every day. Are we sure of that sufficiency of His grace? That we are being carried, not in our own strength, but by a mighty sovereign God. Are we at peace when we pray that one petition, Thy will be done. Thy will, not mine. As the Catechism says, what does it mean? It means that we have to renounce our own will. That's not always that easy, is it? David's confidence came because he understood his God, who he is. Thirdly, notice the comfort that comes with that. In verses 5 to 6, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Absalom's working the crowds in Israel. He's rallying the troops. He's giving advice that the people want to hear. He's holding out his hand for them to kiss. David's military advisor has deserted him. A few faithful are hiding out with David, weeping. But David wasn't afraid. He didn't believe Satan's lie that God was powerless to save. Instead, by faith, he trust in God, a God who's sovereign, a God who's all-powerful, a God who is immutable, a God who is forever faithful. David lived by faith. And that faith rested in God alone. David finds himself in perfect peace. What did he do? He lay down and slept. He lay down and slept. David's comfort, David's peace, didn't come about as a result of changed situation or circumstances in his life. Not at all. He carried his petitions to the Lord and he lay down and he slept. And when he woke up in the morning, what changed? Nothing. He's still on the run. Absalom's still in hot pursuit. Satan's still on the prowl to usurp the throne. David's situation didn't suddenly disappear. His, his crisis didn't disappear overnight just because he prayed to God. David's comfort was not in or conditional on unchanged situation or circumstances. So what gave David peace was his God. Not changed situations. Not change circumstances, but his peace. The fact he could lie down his head because he trusted and his confidence was in God. That was his comfort. One author makes reference to Corrie Ten Boom, who woke up every, mo- every morning in a prison camp. And she acknowledged, in the depth of despair, God was still deeper. In the depth of despair, God was still deeper. Yes, indeed, for Coryton Bohm, for David, their faith was real, wasn't it? They trusted God, they trusted His Word, they trusted His promises, and they confessed, in the depth of despair, God was still deeper. Wow. The deeper, the pit. God was still deeper. Beloved, let me ask you, is that also true for us? In the depth of the pit, God was still deeper. Our comfort. The one who sustained us. The one who carries us. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Love of the Lord, you have that peace. That peace that surpasses all understanding when we rely solely and look to our Heavenly Father. How much does He love you? He sent His Son to die for you. Will He then also just leave you, forsake you, abandon you? No. No. Peace comes a peace that surpasses all understanding, comes only when God and the promises of God are greater than our perceived needs and distress. The question then is, how great is our God? Greater than our problems? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the depth of despair, God is still deeper. And that's what David concludes in verses 7 to 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. God have delivered David, I don't know how many times when you read through the Psalms and through the story and the history of David. And David again recounts God's faithfulness. With the Lord on his side, David says, I have nothing to fear. God is my comfort. It is God who not only brings victory, but he has delivered us from our greatest enemy. And what is that greatest enemy? Not those who can kill you with the sword, but our greatest enemy is sin, death, and hell. And God sent his son to bruise the head of the serpent on Calvary's cross and by his resurrection. Yes, the enemy is real. Yes, the consequences of sin are readily manifest. Yes, there is a clash of the kingdoms. Yes, the battle is still being fought. Yes, what's Satan doing? He still wants to dethrone and destroy the church. Satan wants us to believe that our God is impotent and that he's powerless. But the outcome of this battle, as we're told in Psalm 2, has already been determined, hasn't it? Salvation is in the Lord. Jesus is our sin-bearer. There on the cross, Jesus stood condemned in our place. Through the shedding of His precious blood on the cross, our sins are cleansed, washed. We are accounted as righteous, not because we are good, but because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Love of the Lord, where is Jesus? He seated at the right hand of God the Father as me. He lives and he reigns. And this Jesus is coming again. And he will make all his enemies his footstool. In spite of Absalom's rebellion, it is God's anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ascended to the throne. The rightful heir, David's son, Absalom, The Messiah is seated on the throne. And to that rightful heir, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Satan did not succeed in dethroning David, robbing Solomon of the throne, or robbing Christ of the throne. Therefore, with God's heir on the throne, beloved of the Lord, we have nothing to fear. But the challenge for us each and every day is to live by faith. Whatever our situation, whatever our circumstance, placing our trust in our God, what can we be sure of? God's love, God's faithfulness, God's promises will never fail and never disappoint. And so we live each day not in fear, but by faith. Amen.